0: Welcome to the public orality. The atrocities of Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Kim are well-known to many. What is less known is the childhood of the 20th century's most reviled individuals. With history having frozen them in time along with their unsavory deeds, it can be difficult to imagine Mao uh, playing with other children or Hitler imagining what he would be when he grew up or... Stalin laboring over his homework as an adolescent. But these are some of the areas that my guest, Professor Brandon Gauthier, explores in his new book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Kim. This text is as enlightening as it is entertaining. Gauthier is a professor of history at Fordham University. Professor Brandon Gauthier, welcome to the Public Morality.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a total pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on, Byron.
0: I, I want to begin by having you discuss what drew you to this project.
1: Hmm. I appreciate that. I, I think there's a central question that I've, I've struggled with for a long time as a historian. Should we humanize the inhumane? How do we engage the stories of the monstrous, those who have showed great inhumanity to men and women in a way that is humane? And should we? That's the central question that has long kept me up at night. Um, To answer your question specifically, I recall being uh, a teenager and seeing Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State, go to North Korea and meet Kim Jong-il as one of the last things that happened in the Clinton administration. And in this effort to forge peace, Madeleine, Al- Madeleine Albright found herself sitting with someone who was guilty of crimes against humanity, someone responsible for terrible, terrible acts within that country. And when she left, she was interviewed. And I recall this very vividly. Her being asked, so what was Kim Jong-il like? What was it like to sit across the table from a despotic individual? And she said, in my preparation for my meetings with him, I had been told that he might be someone really, really weird. You know, he might say inappropriate things. We can't be certain of what your interaction will be like. And she recalled that whenever she found herself having dinner with Kim Jong Il, even as she knew he had committed crimes against humanity, she confessed that she found them charming, um, and that she found him likable, and that he seemed to know. Um, have a great deal of expertise to some extent of the policy considerations he was very much in command and and that perturbed her that upset her seeing that stayed with me as I studied North Korea for my doctoral dissertation U.S. North Korean relations and wondering how do we tell the story of people like Kim Jong-il that humanizes them with an appreciation for the fact that they are cautionary tales but they are human and that is the story that is the central lens that guides my analysis of the early lives of terrible dictators of the 20th century.
0: Well, 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 that response begs two questions for me. First, well, the first question is, what do we mean by humanizing someone? Mm. Or what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that there is a natural response when we have individuals who have done terrible things. And I'm inspired in some sense by a professor named James Garabino who had a book um, you know, essentially about why do kids or why do young men go on to commit crimes that we might consider evil? And how do we find ourselves susceptible to language that demonizes or makes someone an other, right? Without appreciating a human story that helps explain, even if, even if it does not excuse, how real people, by humanizing, I mean real people who are born, who have pleasures in life, who experience childhood, who have first loves, have favorite foods, who can, as someone like Joseph Stalin did in the 1950s, read reports about doctors being tortured for a nonsensical conspiracy he's dreamed up, and then, you know, go play with his, go play with his grandkids. How is that possible, this disconnect, that you have individuals who do terrible things and yet otherwise live normal lives? Um, to humanize them is to examine what we have in common with those individuals in terms of shared human behaviors, and it is an effort to not necessarily distinguish yourself in a way that makes these individuals inexplicable, to suggest that we cannot understand. If we cannot understand, we cannot attempt to learn. And if we cannot attempt to learn, we cannot attempt to educate young people, but also ourselves about the road that leads otherwise normal people, human beings, to do terrible things, not always with the belief they're doing terrible things but with the belief they're doing something great. That deeply unsettles
0: me. Well, then my second follow-up question, um, is sort of a two-parter. One, um, did you, in, in researching and writing this text, uh, were you, how concerned with you that you might be letting these otherwise um, tyrants off the hook um, and or about the pushback you may receive that you're letting them off the hook for their barbarism? How, did you have to, was that a line you were conscious of?
1: I, I mean, that, that's a central conundrum, right? Because, um, so, you know, the book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, Kim Il-sung, in North Korea. These individuals are responsible for crimes against humanity, for a level of human suffering Uh, which is so deeply disturbing, but most importantly, it was so real for so many tens of millions of people. And there is this really appropriate discussion uh, about this notion of humanizing those who least deserve it, for whom it is least appropriate. You know, I had um, a professor when I was working through this project idea who said to me, okay, Brandon, you talk about the notion that Hitler loved his mother and had this close relationship with his mother. Who cares? Who cares that Hitler loved his mother before the specter of the Holocaust and the murder of six million innocent men, women and children? Um, And and that resonates. uh, that, That resonates overwhelmingly. So the first introduction of the book engages in a discussion about, first off, is this appropriate? And in short, the core point is that to explain these men and to examine their human aspects in no way excuses their crimes. The first section of the book, one third of the book, is about their crimes against humanity as I also describe them as people, because in no way would I want anyone to read the other chapters about them as young men and come away with any lack of understanding of the extent and scale of the suffering these people caused. And yet at the same time, the core purpose of the book is to remind readers, okay, what do we gain from humanizing them? What is is the purpose? And it is at its core an appreciation that if these are human beings, Monsters aren't real, they're literal monsters, actual vampires and werewolves and so on of the imagination. That is not real. Human beings are, and human beings commit crimes against humanity. If we look at someone like Hitler is not a human being, or Stalin, the man of steel, are we in some sense building up a myth they would have liked that they're not human? That a core part of these being these dictators is to come across as bigger than life, um, to say that Kim Il sung, the founder of North Korea, used a bathroom uh, to talk about him defecating, that would be one of the most offensive things you possibly could have mentioned. So, in one sense, I review humanizing them as a rejection of their cult of personality. They were human beings. Um, and, and then, two, if we do humanize them, for what end, for what purpose? We understand the path or begin to try to appreciate the path through which people do these terrible things. And in doing so, we recognize that we have things fundamentally in common with these despots, that we ourselves, when we begin to believe that self-righteousness lends itself to ends that must be achieved, that the humanity of others becomes secondary to our consideration, that the loss of empathy is a guiding compass for us, this is the road to terrible crimes against humanity. And those who commit them throughout history also often believe they're doing something right. If we don't look at them as human, can we ourselves fall susceptible to the same path without realizing it?
0: Uh, On on several occasions throughout the text, you you use the less familiar names when Mm. referencing your protagonists. Like for example, uh correct me if, I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm mispronouncing this, uh, but Volodia was Lenin. Mm. Uh, mm. Why was your decision, Sosa, Stalin, why, why was your decision to, to use those less familiar names when describing these individuals?
1: I appreciate that question very much because um, that has been a point of, uh, of some pushback, right? If someone says, you know, for instance, if you're even just working with students of history, if we're talking about Mary Wollstonecraft and someone mentions Mary, it's not appropriate, right? Um, we're talking about uh, Wallstonecraft. And so in the book, I did embrace something a little controversial of referring to these despotic leaders by childhood names. Um, and for someone like Stalin, his mom and dad, his friends and family called him Sosa. Um, for someone like Mussolini, I refer to him as Benito. For Kim Il-sung, it is Sungju. And the central reason why If we're trying to look at the childhoods of these individuals, because the two thirds of the book are about these humanizing moments of consequence. Um, Hitler witnessed, excuse me, Lenin witnessing and hearing about the execution of his brother by the czar for a conspiracy to kill him. Hitler uh, experiencing his mom dying before him. Stalin losing his first wife. These humanizing moments. If we begin to speak of Stalin appropriately, right, we begin to think of their crimes against humanity. Um, And and that is, you know, a central focus of the first third of the book. But to engage in a humanizing story, we need to recall individuals before they were evil. Um, We can think of mental illness and sadism as being a pathology, right, that leads individuals to to doing horrible things because they are mentally ill. Uh, But for someone like Vladimir Lenin, a star student from a, a nice family and loving parents, Um, they believe that they're doing something inherently right. And so when I say Lenin, if certain ideas come to mind, the goal is to prompt the reader to see them as young people before they were evil for the larger purpose of appreciating this road, this beginning, this notion of consequence of what I do can matter. And the belief that the path they're heading on is a place of absolute certitude and and justice from their point of
0: view. Uh, Given the reign uh, that he was in power was relatively short in comparison to the others uh, that you highlight, explain why Lenin is specifically on your list.
1: Well, I think Lenin speaks to some core themes that you see across these six dictators. As a whole, I think there's an inclination to view people who do evil things, and I define evil as acting in a way that is intrinsically without empathy right? We don't feel for others. We don't take into consideration others suffering as a result of our decisions. Lenin speaks to a central theme that we see across their lives, which is not necessarily trauma only, but also privilege. And as we look at someone like Stalin or Hitler, the uh, maybe appropriate response is to consider what evil acts were done upon these individuals that made them evil. What suffering did they undergo? And someone like you know, Hitler and Stalin, had abusive fathers, um, but they also had loving mothers and and opportunities that others did not have. Lennon is kind of the, uh, I think, preeminent example of that. He came from a loving family. He came from a mother and father who were decent, hardworking people who instilled in him the need to work hard and do well in school. And his family had nothing to do with politics. Um, And Lennon had no interest in politics growing up. But the execution of his older brother trying to kill the czar. His older brother had been a star student. Took um, a star student like uh, Volodya himself and made him begin to think, why is the world the way it is? How could my brother have been killed? He was such a good person. What are the ideas? What are the books that led him to try to kill the czar? And the story of Lenin, who comes from a family that painted Easter eggs and had Christmas trees and all the things that we identify with a happy family, raises the question, Um, Is the person who in 1918 ordered the Cheka, his secret police, to hang without mercy, to destroy, to wipe out the rich rich peasants, the kulaks, undermining the revolution, to to exterminate them? What, what, What childhood did such a person come from? Apparently a happy one in this case. That complicates how we understand despots. And when we read about Lenin as a young person, we see a lot in common. Um, I, think that's dis- I think that disturbs people. I think that it might even frustrate people, but it complicates the narrative in a way that I think is missing from a lot of historical discussions about these despots.
0: Hmm. I, I, I remember as I was reading your text, and you referenced earlier the first third of it. Um, I remember going several years ago, I visited the Nixon Lib- presidential library, Richard Nixon. And I was surprised and and later pleased that Watergate was the very first exhibit. Because Mm -hmm. by placing Watergate where it positioned it first, it allowed me to to take a more judicious approach toward the presidency of of, of Nixon, where otherwise I would have been going through these things thinking, okay, when we're gonna get the Watergate? When we're gonna get the Watergate? When we're gonna get the Watergate? Mm. Were you attempting to do something similar by beginning your text with their, with the demise of these leaders that sort of helps the reader judiciously engage your otherwise central thesis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's the moral obligation and the historical obligation to start with the discussion that makes very clear who these men were and the crimes that they committed. But there is also, I think, something fascinating as it is disturbing to look at the end of someone's life. And in the case of someone like Lenin or someone like Hitler and someone like Stalin, to look back at their own lives and, and to the extent that they're capable of that self-insight, which they're not when it comes to their crimes, um, to look at what has happened, what has uh, occurred under their leadership. And for someone like Stalin, they they find themselves as the opening chapter on him talks about his crimes. You know, it talks about Stalin laying in his own urine In the end, right? A prisoner of his own totalitarian nightmare. As Stalin is laying on the floor, having had a stroke, his guards won't even come in to check on him because they're scared. A powerless little boy, if you will, anew. That's not how we normally think about Stalin at the end. Um, But effectively, he was powerless once again. And so by starting at the end of their lives, we accomplish the ability to describe their crimes very clearly. That these men are guilty of crimes against humanity, but also offers us the opportunity to begin to look at who they were. And it begs the question, Byron, is it appropriate to talk about the fact that um, Hitler was obsessed with Wagner and records? Um, Should we talk about the fact that someone like Mao Zedong really enjoyed uh, eating spicy pork or fatty pork? Is this appropriate? I believe it is, if we are to understand how such men and women can come to be, we have to examine them as not um, anything other than human beings. They're monstrous human beings. They're some of the worst human beings who've ever lived. Yet at the end of the day, Vladimir Lenin found himself slowly withering away in his mind at the end as he'd had several strokes and effectively losing his mental faculties. Do we feel bad for him, Byron? Can we feel bad for someone who least deserves it? Or is it our capacity to feel his humanity even as we condemn him and hold him accountable forthrightly? Is that what makes us different?
0: You know, you know um, another thought that occurred to me reading your text, in, in contemporary, contemporary American politics, anyone we don't agree with uh, we, we sort of uh, liberally throw the term fascist around. Well, what is fascism? And could you explain why some at some point in history might find that orthodoxy acceptable? Mm.
1: Well, I think we can speak broadly about fascism as the normally it is represented in a larger uh, dictator to be, who begins to make these promises of national greatness. Um, If we look at the quintessential fascist and Adolf Hitler uh, or Benito Mussolini, normally fascism is about a promise of a return to national greatness. We are going to restore that greatness to our people. Fascism in turn goes hand in hand, normally with the effort to castigate and blame a minority population um, as a scapegoat for a country's problems. More than that, fascism, as it calls for a return to national greatness and normally scapegoats and blames a minority population, which the language of fascism prompts their persecution. Um, a fascist at the same time is suggesting that will and discipline can achieve all that. The people who are in power don't know what they're doing. And the and the legal system in power that this is for lack of better words, that this is idiocy, this is stupidity. And that if only we had the right person in power who would engage in this this notion of will, would act, and that they would restore this country to greatness, that we could get things done. So fascism, a return to national greatness, normally the focusing of castigating a minority group as a scapegoat. And then in addition to that, to focus on the effort of the strong man and normally the rejection of democracy, that democracy itself is a weakness that we, we don't need. And it's obviously the bread and butter, to use that cliche, is the bread and butter of lies <laughs> um, w- without apology, with taking whatever the ills of democracy and making them all consuming. And, and you know, wouldn't you know it, the dictator in question, the despot to be who promises greatness, he begins to engage in the prevarication Um, the duplicity that he himself criticizes democracy for representing. And uh, that normally is the road that one goes down in terms of what fascism itself can become. And and I think there are some deeply disturbing lessons though of the notion, how did people find themselves going to rallies of Adolf Hitler and being seduced by this? I I think those who go to these, who went to these rallies, right? They become complicit. they become complicit if they are there supporters of these individuals and the heinous anti-Semitism of someone like Hitler. Um, but what lead what led so many? Um, you know, roughly thirty-seven percent of the vote in Nazi Germany um, ultimately helped leading to the events that make Hitler chancellor. Um, how could people be seduced by that notion of fascism? Does that answer the question? There was a second part.
0: Could you repeat it for me? No, no, no. I think you got both parts. I, I said, "What is it, and, and why might people find it acceptable?" Uh, what I mean. What do you think, Byron? What, what, what
1: are the larger trends that lead people to believe in maybe this larger dream, this vision? And, and why also often it has to come down to um, this notion of, you know, of, of castigating this other or this promise of national greatness. Um, it's this disturbing trend. And, and obviously we've seen it in other times and places. What, what do you think?
0: Oh, no, I I think I think it starts with a misunderstanding of what the country has already committed itself to. Mm. Um, Mm. uh, I I think that um, if you look at if you look at, you know, Nazi Germany, in my view, post World War One, there was there was an end result. We are starving. Inflation. Um, is, is off the roof and I have an answer. And then that answer leads to what you just said. I have an enemy for your problems. I don't necessarily have a way to solve it, but I have you something, I've given you something to hate to forego your, your democratic identity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can look at the Weimar, uh, Weimar Republic founded after World War I in Germany. Um, and that constitution offered certain democratic protections, protections of civil rights. What's so disturbing though, and I think a larger trend, all right, so we're looking at these despots or human beings who go on to do these really heinous things. And, and very disturbingly, again, they don't believe that they're evil. They believe they're doing something inherently right. Okay. That's one thing, right? That, that, that's a story in itself that my book Before Evil delves into very deeply. And what are the human stories that lead them to that place in their life, right? But I, I find really disconcerting uh, within the case of someone um, like Hitler it is the support and negotiations that he has with conservative uh, monarchical, meaning supporters of the old uh, of the old monarchy within imperial monarchy within Germany before World War I until it collapsed in November 1918. Um, Hitler would not have come to power without the act of collaboration of conservatives within the German government who thought, you know, this is um, to varying degrees, uh, you know, they have this. this, this Disturbing traits and disturbing ideas and, uh, of anti Semitism within the NSDAP, uh, you know, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. But these compromises of well, there's things we find disconcerting, although there are anti-Semitic elements within conservatives in Germany. Anti-Semitism has a, a wide reach within Germany at the time, right? Not to diminish that. But the core point is someone like President Hindenburg, uh, the, the German hero of the First World War, right, who is, and essentially tells Hitler in the beginning that he's not going to support him becoming Chancellor because he thinks it'll devolve into a party dictatorship and have great consequences for the German people, especially those who don't support support the NSDAP, the Nazis. And yet, in the end the compromises are made and conservatives, when Hitler comes to power, think we can control them, right? We're going to change him, or at the very least we can hem him in and prevent him from going off and doing terrible things. And it's not only conservatives. There is a centrist Catholic party, which in 1934, uh, to support the suspension of civil rights within Germany for a limited time, the president Hindenburg ultimately agrees with it, but that required a two thirds majority in the German Reichstag to uh, essentially suspend the constitution, and it is a, a centrist Catholic party which compromises with the NSDAP, the Nazi party, and makes it possible. How did despotic individuals come to believe they have to do these things? But how are others, if they are not openly seduced, find themselves becoming complicit and making compromises, they're gonna have real consequences for the suffering of many, many people, and yet they don't see it
0: necessarily. You know, one one of the connections that I made um, in uh, Before Evil, Lenin was the antecedent to Stalin. Mussolini was the antecedent to Hitler. Um, So is Mao the antecedent to Kim?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think it's fascinating that Mao Zedong and Kim Il-sung will have a very interesting relationship. But... Kim Il-sung himself is a product of Korea's history. Um, There will be a close relationship between the CCP and what will become North Korea or a Korean Communist Party. But I think the connection is less about Mao to Kim and more about the fact that Korea is colonized by Japan. They're fighting for independence and that Kim Il-sung will belong to the Chinese Communist Party in the 1930s within Manchuria because um, it's communists who are fighting Japan. And there is not effectively a Korean Communist Party that exists. Um, You raise a really interesting point, though, and and forgive me for saying this next part and expanding on what we're talking about. One part of the book as well, right? Even if we're talking about North Korea, you know, my dissertation was the effort to understand um, not only Kim Il-sung, but why does North Korea exist? This is something talked about in the opening chapter of North Korea and Kim Il-sung. How do North Koreans, those who are true believers, justify North Korea? North Korea deserves to be condemned harshly for its egregious human rights abuses. Um, But what is the intellectual justification for why Kim Il-sung creates North Korea, why North Korea exists? And that would be, I think, something that goes hand in hand with humanizing these leaders, even as we find it distasteful. Do we really want to be, quote unquote, fair to North Korea? Is that the appropriate thing? What do we gain by doing it? We gain perspective. North Korea is a terrible place, but historically, I don't think many Americans appreciate that Korea was colonized by Japan. North Korea views itself as this tiny power standing up to American imperialism and views itself as the continuation of this larger guerrilla struggle to create an independent Korea that is not being uh, you know, pushed around by foreign powers. Um, what do we gain from that? You know, I think there's something deeply interesting to talk about in that regard. Um, I'd be happy to go on about Kim Il-sung if you're interested,
0: Byron. <laughs> no, no, please go ahead and continue.
1: Well, I I think there's an interesting parallel to the ways that Kim Il-sung, even as he is in this Korea-centric idea and mindset, right? Of I am 100% wedded to the notion of creating an independent Korea. And some people might say, well, doesn't he really just want to be a despot and a dictator? You know, isn't this really all about power? Stop talking about humanizing them and their ideas. Now they think they're right. And let's just be honest. These are cynical, power-hungry dictators who want to exploit their people and take advantage and be kleptocrats and live in marble mansions. And um, that, uh, that is, is not the whole story. And I think that's really reductive. Kim Il-sung is really focused on this Korea-centric worldview that Americans don't really understand or appreciate. Um, you can't say North Korea and Korea today. But North Korea, by the way, they would say there's no such country. There's only Korea. But even Kim Il-sung Song adopts things from the outside world that inform his worldview. He's raised as a Christian. The chapters in Before Evil talk about um, Kim Il-sung's Christian upbringing. And what's really interesting about that is um, his family's religious convictions are sincere. And even he in his his memoirs talks about it. And and I find that fascinating. A way in which someone who is raised with a moral mindset that is, is profound in many respects, you know, he will speak later about, well, the Christian community, um, imparted many gifts to me and, and they were really helpful uh, in terms of my early struggles. It's, it's a reverend right that offers crucial help to his fam- to him when he begins to be imprisoned. Um, and yet Kimmel-sung ultimately rejects some Christian doctrine. Why should we turn the other cheek? you know Christianity will make us soft. but he in many ways becomes a religious fanatic. He rejects Jesus Christ and ultimately decides that, he is going to turn his country into the most religious country in the world to achieve political stability. And guess who gets to be God? Him. And the North Korean people become effectively um, trapped in a system in which they are taught to worship Kim Il-sung as if he is effectively God and to cr- question him. The talk about inappropriate questions is, is heresy. And hell becomes a real place, Byron. Hell becomes a place that exists in North Korea. As a certainty, and in that place, North Koreans who find themselves outside the orthodoxy suffer terrible, terrible fates. And there are some um, who know that in their mind, Kim Il Sung's notion of his cult of personality, this religion, is not true. Uh, But then there are also true believers, right? And I think many Americans would look at North Korea and say, like, how could they, you know, be so foolish? But there is something intrinsically, I think, human about the need to believe in a greater power. Power. And I think that's profoundly important to us as a species. Um, But North Korea adapts this idea, rejects Christianity, and adapts this idea of the savior, uh, the need to rest easy in the bosom of a savior, to know that this higher power is looking out for you. And yet it's also hollow in North Korea and deeply tragic. But if I were raised in North Korea, part of the humanizing of these people, trying to see it from a different perspective, I think step one would be to admit I myself might find myself singing in praise of Kim Il Sung, and it'd be disingenuous to say
0: otherwise. Yeah. I'm speaking with Fordham University Professor Brandon Gauthier Gauthier. Sorry. Oh yeah, you got uh, it. About, about, about his latest book, "Before Evil: Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Kim." Uh, professor Gauthier, uh, I'm going to go back to 1953 when Stalin died. Um. Here's what uh W. E. B. Du Bois wrote about Stalin. Joseph mm. Stalin was a great man. Few other men of the 20th century approached his stature. I'll stop right there. Were the magnitude of Stalin's crimes in 1953 not not known? I mean, you look. We look back in a 21st century lens, and you're like, how could Du Bois write such a thing?
1: Mm-hmm. I. I'm deeply interested in that core point. So you have one of the great African-American intellectuals of US history, right? Um, Someone whose ideas in the souls of black folk about the notion of um, wages of whiteness, right? Some some Mm -hmm. crucial fundamental ideas about how we can best understand the meaning of race in American society, Um, who finds himself seduced by believing that Stalin was this hero of the working class. That keeps me up at night, Byron. I really <laughs> struggle. That is the essence of what the book is about, right? And this is down the inverse. We're taking a great man, a great intellectual, whose ideas we should be reading and thinking about deeply. And yet he wrote a eulogy to Stalin? How is that possible? And, and the discussion that comes from that leads us to such a a more nuanced understanding of of W.B. Du Bois. And and, in that discussion, right, here's what we come away with. Um, We appreciate, okay, first off, uh, this is a great intellectual. Ideas are extremely important. Why could he have said these things about Stalin? We get away from seeing a marble man, or in the case of one of these despots, a demon, and we start to see a human being. And the story, I believe, is this. Um, the Communist Party of the United States was one of the most outspoken political organizations fighting against egregious racism in this country. In the 1920s and 30s, one of the most outspoken voices demanding racial justice was uh, the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, and so you have a lot of individuals who were drawn to communism uh, through this lens of civil rights. And I mean, you can look at someone like Paul Robeson as well, um, another great fighter for civil rights in the country who really suffers at the hands of McCarthyism in the 1950s. And yet also, I think, along with Du Bois, um, should be criticized and condemned for the support of Stalin. But I don't think that that's very helpful, right, to just condemn them and say, how could they have done this? We have to talk about why. And there's a much more interesting story of the notion that they viewed Stalin and the Soviet Union through the lens of racial justice and through an inherently domestic mindset that I think in this case blinded them to the evils of this Soviet dictator, and even Paul Robeson, when he goes to the Soviet Union, um, finds himself face to face. I forget the writer's name, the Soviet writer, and he asks to see this friend, and this friend had since fallen from favor, and he's in a hotel room uh, in Moscow, I believe it is. And this friend points around the room to try to indicate, you know, don't we have to be careful what we say? And then he points at himself, and he makes uh, a mark across his neck, basically to say. Um, you know, look, I, I'm, I've had it. I'm, I'm in big trouble here. And so there are moments of, you know, co- cognitive dissonance in their mind where they believe these things about Stalin, um, and then begin to see the reality of it. And that's fascinating. On, on the other side of this, take North Korea. You know, North Korea has committed such terrible crimes and is wrong on deeply wrong on so many levels. There are moments when even North Korea has been right at negotiations at Panmunjom in the early 1960s when North Korea was guilty of attacking and killing Americans along the, the DMZ, the military zone. Of course, North Korea would say this differently. And Americans sitting at the table with the Panmunjom said, you know, you're bloodthirsty ghouls. I'm paraphrasing, that's the gist of it. Essentially, you don't have any civilization, you're acting like animals. And the North Koreans pulled out a newspaper and said, you lecture us about civilization and, and morals and ethics. And again, I paraphrase, but that's, this is the gist. And then they hold up a newspaper with images from Birmingham, Alabama, of civil rights protesters having dogs sicked on them. And they say, who here is uncivilized? Is it us? Who here? And in what country right now are people being violently oppressed uh, because of their skin color? Is it in our country? And so even that there are these moments of historical complexity where in that moment, North Korea was making, North Korea's representatives were making a valid point about the contradictions of American life. And so does Nikita Khrushchev when he comes to the United Nations in the early 1960s and and stays in Harlem, right? And meets with African-Americans to discuss racial issues. This doesn't mean that we don't criticize North Korea. It doesn't mean we don't criticize Khrushchev for for the the crimes that you could say he committed against the Soviet people. But doesn't it mean that we also have to have some hard conversations about ourselves? And the point of the book is that if we demonize, we lose sight of perspective and humility about uh, the need to appreciate how we ourselves, as it has happened in the United States, can find our country committing human rights abuses?
0: Uh, You wrote a sentence that I just love and I'd like to hear you say more about it. Um, And you wrote that Stalin cannibalized his own humanity. Say more about that if you would.
1: Oh, 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 I struggle with it in the sense that Stalin, he had human relationships. Um, His first wife, when he is a young man, dies of uh, of typhus and he's a bad husband right um but he loves her and it's a real relationship it's a real marriage he holds his first wife if she dies and after that he says you know um at her funeral when he sobs he throws himself on the casket and we're no longer seeing the man of steel we're seeing a person right and he says out loud um with her die my last warm feelings for humanity um and then you know from then on, we see this process of increasingly a lack of willingness to be intimate, to be vulnerable, um, and more than that, the growing inclination, as will happen in later years, to destroy those who know his vulnerability. His second wife, um, and it's, again, it's a real, it's a real marriage. You know, what do I mean by that? There are fights, there are love letters, um, there are children. Um, she commits, um, she commits suicide very tragically. Um, and when she commits suicide, again, we have a quote unquote man of steel who's deeply, deeply, deeply crushed by this. His daughter says that he'll never get over it. That um, He couldn't understand how he felt like she had betrayed him and, and punished him by killing herself. And he'll struggle with that. Uh, people who know Solomon will say that after his second wife's death, um, something changed. Um, so, something becomes worse. Something becomes exacerbated by this tragedy. And yet he has, um, he has his daughter who he loves so deeply. And, and he's a good father to some extent in the 1930s. Now, some historians may make fun of that statement and say, no, he's a terrible father. He was never around, right? But there are moments where he cuddles his daughter. They write letters back and forth. He checks her homework at times. Um, but what do I mean by cannibalize his humanity? A growing inability and unwillingness to be vulnerable as his um, daughter begins to grow up during World War II, starts to resemble her dead mother. Um, Stalin becomes harsh towards her She has a love affair with the wrong man during World War II And um, he speaks really cruelly to her He curses at her and says um, You know, you're going around having sex with men He doesn't use those words, he curses While there's such a war going on And he slaps her And um, Stalin increasingly destroys Not only this huge array of political opponents, right Um, He is ruthless in committing murder On an industrial scale by quota numbers but it's also the intimates that he destroys. He freezes out his daughter, um, those who had known him in the early days, including his in-laws from his first marriage, um, who ultimately have killed. He cannibalizes his humanity and that he increasingly, consciously or not, seeks to destroy those who knew his human self. And in doing so, somewhere along the way, that human thread becomes lost. He's still human, but he ends his days alone, trapped, trapped in a prison of his own making, an inverse prison, not meant to protect the world from him, but to protect himself from the world.
0: Of the individuals you highlight, um, North Korea, ironically, in my view, has maintained its authoritarian dynasty. and, And so much that I would offer that Kim, if he were alive today, could in many respects govern North Korea, very similar to the manner in which he reigned. The rest, in my view, would have a more difficult time, although there are some of those true believers um, who might make the Putin-Stalin comparison, um, uh, as well as Berlusconi and Mussolini. Your thoughts?
1: What a great question. Um, it's unsettling, isn't it? Uh, I-, I guess what I would say is, you know, Kim Il-sung's North Korea exists in many ways, although North Korea has changed profoundly in many ways, but the political system remains. Um, and I think we have to be careful, I would say, up front over uh, interpo- you know, taking any one unique historical situation that sees the rise of someone like Hitler or Lenin and applying it in a direct fashion to what exists today in a given country. There are myriad historical variables that led to those moments, right? Um, that are not just about any one individual, but you know, macro historical factors. Um, But that being said, uh, as you know, I think about uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book, Strongman, and the conversations that she has had about the playbook of authoritarians. And I do think that under the right historical conditions, which may or may not exist in one moment, that a potential despot-to-be tries to foster those circumstances through this, this language of something like fascism, but more of these promises of greatness and this notion of this end of history rhetoric, right? That I see this place we're going to go and we can do anything that we need to do to get there. That type of rhetoric and that type of leader, I do think that that can happen. And by looking at you know Germany today, we might not speak in terms of Hitler, right? It, it, the the variables are different and every historical moment cannot be compared to another. But if we look at the circumstances that allow the rise of dictators, we have to look inwards and understand that the right circumstances in which leaders embrace the authoritarian playbook of lying, of the offering these delusions of greatness, and that we can achieve it through any means. What are the compromises that are made that aren't really only about whether, you know, Mussolini could rule today's Italy, but are the compromises we ourselves make in a given political situation that increasingly fosters circumstances in a political environment that leads that evolution, that evolution, is rooted in the destabilizing of democracy. The destabilization of democracy is rooted in the slow and sometimes subtle, but increasingly overt breaking of political standards, right? Breaking of basic rules of law, the notion more than anything as well. And and I think, I don't know if it was Hannah Arendt, but Ruth ben Giat talks about this, um, that the greatest, excuse me, the most terrifying moments of totalitarianism are not necessarily the evil words proffered by a given despot to their people, but the moments in which the followers or potential followers or ordinary citizens of a country begin to buy into alternative realities where we lose sight of basic facts and basic rules through which we determine what is real or what is scientifically supported and what is not. So, I would say the greater danger is not only within the rise of despots, but the compromises we make that enable their potential rise. And I think that means, remains deeply relevant, not only to the United States, um, but to many countries throughout the world today.
0: Uh, but, but as you point out so, um, so persuasively, the architects of these heinous acts were once children. Yeah. And when when you think about the subjects that you researched, was there anything that jumped out of you about any or all of them? Uh, Answer that however you see fit.
1: Yeah. Um, I think a central argument of before evil is that rather than looking at trauma, the classic popular depiction of these men is to say, you know, they had terrible childhoods. Right. And there was some type of harm or trauma done to them that made them incapable of feeling for others. That is not what the historical records suggest. This is not to tell you that Stalin wasn't traumatized by the death of his first wife. That trauma was real. His dad also beat him severely as a child. And, you know, by the way, some historians increasingly will reject that we should care about as much. And that's been overemphasized, which I have a problem with that narrative. But there's been a fundamental correction that this book tries to, uh, to engage in, which is that these leaders are not best understood in terms of the development through childhood trauma, though that's part of the story, particularly, particularly with someone like Hitler. The main thing we see that stands out so dramatically in their childhoods as we read more deeply into human stories is that they have the benefits of certain privileges that others don't, that they all have loving mothers. Or in the case of someone like Lennon's uh, dad, they have a very responsible father who is present in his life. Um, They have loving mothers who make immense sacrifices for them. Um, We can look at someone like Stalin, right? Whose mom uh, in patriarchal Georgia does every single thing she can to make sure this kid gets a first rate education, protects him from his abusive father by leaving him, you know, works as a laundress, does everything she can to get him into a school, that will then lead to him going to the seminary. And at the seminary he begins to get something approaching a college education. There, Stalin reads Victor Hugo. You know, Stalin reads Dostoevsky. I mean, he's extremely well read. He's not um, a zealot in the sense of someone who's do- so dogmatic that they don't appreciate any intellectual complexities of the world. Oh, and and by the way, it's it's not. Um, you know, illiterate cobblers that lead the Bolshevik revolution in October slash November 1917. Um, It's extremely well-read intellectuals who begin to believe that we know it can be, we know it has to be done and it's going to be brutal, but we have to do it because then paradise will come. So you see this commonality of one, loving mothers and sometimes loving fathers, although that doesn't always hold, but really good moms who are determined to help their kids get ahead. And more than that, or equal to that, good educations, um, they are, as a whole, really big readers, bibliophiles. Um, we could, you know, uh, we could with Kim Il-sung, we can argue, was really Kim Il-sung a bibliophile? And that's a debate of varying degrees. But yeah, when he goes to school, he has a really good teacher. He reads Gorky's mother. Um, he has intellectual influences. He reads Chinese novels in old age. Mao is deeply inspired by the classic Chinese novels of that great country's history, right? Reading a book. Uh, like Water Margin, which is a really, really important book there. Um, Lenin is deeply uh, affected by Russian literature um, and books like uh, Nikolai Chernyshevsky's What Is To Be Done. So we don't really best, we can't best understand these people, where they come from just through the notion of trauma. But it is looking at what are the privileges that they had? Um, mothers who helped them get ahead, um, who loved their kids and were good people, who had big dreams for them. And then this emphasis on education, they tend to have at some point in their lives, a good teacher who really cares about them, who encourages them to think big and act. The takeaway there again is, you know, someone might say, who cares? I think we should, because in them, we see ourselves sometimes. And who among us doesn't look to our children and say, you know, read great books and think about what you can do to make the world a better place. We have to act. Yes, we have to act but we cannot lose sight of the need for empathy and love and mercy. And um, if the ends justify the means, we ourselves can go down a very bad road. And uh, I, I, that's a central takeaway. Good parenting, which is not something that comes to mind initially in um, education. And what arises out of that is kind of conviction, this agency of like, I, I could do this. I, this really intense self-belief in these men that begins to take hold that they have something profound to do in life and it's gonna be great. That's the source, unfortunately, among many other sources of great
0: evil. Following up on that, um, as you wrote, I mean, there was no uh, teleology of evil based on each individual's background, but was the evil that they eventually championed the natural and dare I say expected outcome when one adopts a personal ideology of, I, my words, supreme megalomania? If you, if you go that route, is, is, is evil just the, the natural out, expected outcome? Mm.
1: I mean, it's a great question in the sense that someone like Hitler believes in this notion of personal greatness before he even has an ideological system to define what that might be or to give – some type of roadmap or meaning. So when I speak about no teleology of evil, I I think we have to be very careful, right, to not look for the origins of the definitive origins of the Holocaust, right, within Hitler's relationship with his parents. And I qualify that carefully in the sense that his relationship with his parents mattered profoundly for who he became. But um, the story of the Holocaust, of this great evil, is more complicated in terms of macro historical factors. um, And when Hitler begins to embrace what will be this virulent anti-Semitism and what will become the NSDAP, the Nazi party. But before that, before that evil, we have a 17 year old who believes he's going to be a great artist who lectures his only friend, uh, Gustav, for hours at a time, right? of The great things that he's going to do with art and the supreme self-belief um, and, you know, the same for Benito Mussolini, this notion that I am special. Uh, one of his cousins will, will you know, say, I think acerbically later on, he was always arrogant. <laughs> but this, this self-belief, this conviction, um, it starts early before they can even define it ideologically. Um, and there's intellectual origins of that self-belief as well for someone like Mao Zedong. Um, he has a teacher in, high, in the equivalent of what we'll call high school, uh, Hunan First Normal School for teachers, a teacher named Yang, Yang Changchi, And this teacher essentially tries to instill him. You know, the great man seeks to make the world a better place and benefits himself in doing so, but makes the world a better place at the same time. If you are utterly, um, utterly wedded to your values, right? If you are unwilling to bend in your search for justice and you will do whatever it takes you can achieve great things. You, as a, as a person of will, can be someone who'd rather die than see his cause fail. And you can do it. You can achieve it. And so what we might see as a first step towards creating justice in this world, for them, becomes somewhere along the way deformed into a belief system that something like Marxism and communism, which at a principal level in the mind of Lenin or Stalin, Uh, or Mao, it's supposed to be about creating this utopia, um, equality for men and women everywhere, no rich and poor, a better life. You know, people might say, of course, you know, I would say they're power hungry and on and on and on. These are bloodthirsty, demonic individuals. And to an extent, that's part of the equation, absolutely. But even someone like Lenin um, doesn't become the dictator of Soviet Russia because he wants to inflict mass murder. He does it because he thinks he's going to be able to do something great Mao Zedong doesn't create a policy in the Great Leap Forward, which leads to the death of over 40 million people because he wants to see 40 million people die, but because he has a belief system that says it could work. But what's his role in it? And where along the way did he believe that he had a monopoly on truth, on what can and should be, and that he should make no apologies in doing whatever it takes to achieve it?
0: The book, Before Evil, our guest uh, for this hour has been Professor Brandon Gauthier. Professor Gauthier, I want to thank you so much for not only providing this uh, very stimulating, exciting text, but joining us for this hour on the Public rally. Much appreciated.
1: Oh, Byron, the pleasure has been all mine. I'm a fan of your work. I'd love to come back in the future. Uh, a total pleasure. Uh, Before Evil, it's out April 26th through Tortoise Books. So you can get it online. You can go to beforeevil.com. <laughs> Um, you can find it there. Uh, where to buy? Uh, and if you feel if you would like to hear more about some of what I'm talking about, you can also follow me on Twitter, at bk underscore and then Gaucher, Gauthier. Uh, Byron, thank you so much for having me on and and letting me have this conversation with you. The pleasure has been all mine, sir.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B Y R O N. At You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.